Hi, I'm Ray Dubicki, and this is the Urbanist Podcast, where we discuss news, information, and ideas about improving cities and quality of life. And I'm Natalie Argarius. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about a proposed ballot initiative aimed at creating affordable housing in Seattle using a different approach. Stick around. So, Ray, we're here to discuss today a ballot initiative that's been proposed um, and for which signature gathering is currently uh, currently ongoing. It feels like we only have had like five elections in the last five months, so why not add something new? Yeah, we have to keep mixing things up, you know. So the organization that filed for this ballot initiative is called the House Our Neighbors Coalition, and they formed um, in response to the proposed city charter amendment nicknamed Compassion Seattle, which a lot of people didn't think was too compassionate. I think it fell into the like conservative compassion thing from a couple years ago that it was kind of neither of either. So, And that... That particular uh, charter amendment fizzled out. It was deemed to be um, not applicable to the city's charter for a variety of reasons. However, the group um, continued on and maintained their organizing work and decided they wanted to pursue a different strategy for creating affordable housing in Seattle. Strictly for their work opposing that awful Compassion Seattle charter amendment, the How's Our Neighbors Coalition has my attention for whatever they'd like to do next. There is a lot to learn about this particular ballot initiative, which is why I'm going to recommend you also check out my article um, on the topic. A little bit of self-promotion. It's a very good article. I think that's totally legitimate. Thank you. Thank you for siding with my self-promotion. Um, but I, I, in this podcast, we also will t- touch on a few things that um, I didn't touch on in the article as well. So what's How's Our Neighbors proposing to do? What's the goal of their ballot initiative? The goal of the ballot initiative is to create more social housing in Seattle. I want to take a quick pause here and describe a bit of what they mean when they say social housing, because this is a little different than the definition that we've used in many different articles in the past in The Urbanist. So in its broadest sense, social housing is housing that's outside of the market housing that is permanently affordable, either because it's held by a city government, a state government, a nonprofit entity or organization, any of those will fall under the banner of social housing. Here, however, they're talking about a specific kind of social housing. This would be affordable housing that is created by a public developer, And it would be mixed income, which makes it different than a lot of the affordable housing that's getting constructed today in Seattle. What kind of income are we talking about when we're talking about mixed income here? So we're talking about incomes that range from zero to 100% of area median income. And rents would be capped at 30% of the tenant's monthly monthly income. So um, average monthly income is about $100,000 for a family of four around here. So if we're talking about rents being capped at 30% uh, percent of that, we're talking about $30,000 a year in the cost to rent that, which is not small, but it's not as high as some people are facing this time. The, um, the model that they are using is a form of social housing that you find in Europe, you find in South America, 
and is actually really prevalent throughout the world. The idea is that by creating these mixed income communities, number one, the housing is less financially reliant on outside support. And then number two, you can create opportunities for social integration. You can have people from different incomes, different walks of life, um, all living together and participating um, in the democratic self-governance of this housing, which is something I'll point out as well, um, is really big in, um, in social housing as it exists in other parts of the world and is a priority for the House Our Neighbors Coalition here. What kind of stuff do you see in a democratic self-governance? Sure. So for to begin with, right now in the ballot initiative, the um, the public developer will have a board and the majority of board members will be tenants and they will be democratically elected by other tenants. So right there, you see some of that you know, democratic self-governance principle. But there will be also some seats that will be held by people representing specific interests, like labor is one of them, a leader from a community organization, a green development professional, an urban planning professional. So they're trying to, you know, get um, different interests in the leadership of the public developers so that um, the, the, the model is intended to to maybe be more responsive to tenants' needs. And when I was reading about how this democratic self-governance takes place in other parts of the world, it can go a lot farther than that. In Vienna, tenants actually participate in the design of a number of these buildings. But Vienna is churning out thousands of units of housing under this model um, every year and has been doing so for decades. One thing that we kind of lack around town is places to build some of this. How how are we starting out to, how is this organization starting out finding land to build this on? That is an extremely important question to ask, and it raises one of the very important things that people should know about this proposed initiative, which is that it would create a process for public lands. If this initiative passes, and then it's approved as an ordinance by the city government, the city will have to conduct a feasibility study that will look at our housing needs, and then determine whether or not publicly owned land should be transferred to the public developer before they consider the sale of that land to other parties. So the Mercer megablock that got sold uh, a couple years ago through kind of a not most transparent process, that would have been on the list to uh, be in this process for assessing public lands. Absolutely. And I think the Mercer Mega Block is an excellent example because, you know, there were a lot of people who had concerns about how that sale worked out and if it really, um, if it really was in the best interest of the city long-term. Besides the fact that they're going to have tenants on the managing board, this doesn't sound a whole lot like a giant corporation building houses. How is this organization going to be different than who we normally see build apartments in the city? So it's going to be a public development authority, which is something you know more than just a little bit about, Ray. And so I'm going to turn it over to you in a second. Um, but I'm just going to start out by saying this is not the first time this has happened. Back in 1976, the city of Seattle set up what was then called Capitol Hill Housing to assist with the creation of um, affordable housing and then also securing loans for the improvement of properties in the Capitol Hill area because 
back then the neighborhood was actually seen as in decline and in need of um, renov. There were many properties that were in need of renovation, and people who were living there were having difficulty getting access to the loans they needed to complete those renovations. So, it yeah, it's not without a precedent. It's happened before, um, but it it is different than the other models that are currently being employed. But now I want to hear more from you about this public development authority phenomenon because it's pretty widespread, right? Washington does a lot of public development authorities. In a lot of ways, they're uh, something between a contractually created government and a government created corporation where they there's a bunch of state law that says how you set one of these up and either the General Assembly can pass a new law that says, poof, you have a new uh, PDA or the city can pass one that says, poof, you have a new public development authority. So I want to hear about some examples or at least one example of a public development authority that listeners might be familiar with. Uh, Pike Place Market. Uh, Pike Place Market is a historic district, but they have a board that gets to decide on everything from market renovations to um, extensions and all of the work that's going on there, as well as they get to set the rules for the uses that show up in the market. They have a little bit more of a free hand that says, hey, Commercial can also include mm, uh, the quasi-industrial brewing of beer or artworks or restaurants or things that don't normally appear uh, in uh, the same uh, space. So when it came to the decision to create a a PDA or a public development authority to um, create affordable housing – That came in large part because PDAs can bond, which is really, really powerful. The goal for this particular PDA is to not become completely self-sufficient, but to become much more self-sufficient than other forms of affordable housing that we currently have in the city. So imagine it like this. Once the startup funds are invested into the PDA, then it will be able to take out bonds against future rents. And as those future rents are paid, they'll be able to take out bonds against more future rents. And the hope is that this will create a fortuitous cycle in which more money will be coming in to sustain the um, the creation and the maintenance of this housing. So long term, this housing will be owned by the public developer. And so much of this is owning land, putting bonds out, being able to turn money over with a board that's kind of separate from the government, but in a way of, um, I don't know, plausible deniability. (laughs) That's a really good point and not something that actually I'd thought about a lot in the context of this. I think with this particular effort, the, um, the, the public development authority, it, it makes sense because creating affordable housing is so expensive. And we've seen this time and time again that we we need all kinds of housing in this city, to be quite frank. But, I mean, they're looking at creating housing that will house people who are earning 120% of our area median income. And our area median income. And I mean, there was an article in the Seattle Times recently that showed that households that are earning over $100,000 a year are now the majority in the city of Seattle. So there, there is a need to make housing for what are the moderate income households in Seattle today, but all the way to the very low income ones. And 
the goal for this is to to make this housing in a way that's not constrained by some of the requirements that accompany the creation of other types of affordable housing. So for instance, federal tax credits will generally not allow you to create housing for households that are earning more than, I believe, 60% of area median income. Right there, that really limits who this housing can be made available to. And the idea is, is that if we can welcome people from various income levels into this housing and incite them to stay, because that's also, you know, that's also something to consider. Um, When you look at the history of public housing in the United States, and you look at some of the large public housing developments that were created after World War II, many of them were mixed income in their onset, you know, in the beginning. But then over time, because of bad policy decisions and other factors, a lot of those working class, middle income households moved out. And we began to see, you know, what I think is broadly understood to be the decline of public housing in America in part because of that. So here they're really looking for a different model, one that hopefully will be more resilient. When the actual buildings start coming out of the ground, how is the organization thinking about picking who gets to have these houses? That's a great question, because even once we begin developing this housing, it's not going to immediately satisfy all the need. So it will be um, based on a lottery system. The um, ballot initiative includes language that it will be minimum ba- minimal barrier meaning that there won't be requirements that relate to criminal record or substance use. It it, it is in compliance with what other landlords are using in the city of Seattle. Um, There would be no fee or background check application process, and it would not discriminate based on immigration status. I worry a little bit that some of those would almost face a bit of a backlash from other people in the community that might be right on the edge of affording their houses right now. There is the potential for that. And whenever you create this housing, there's the question of who's going to live in it and then do they deserve to be there, right? And that is a it's a big question, it is a thorny question, and it comes out of scarcity. If we didn't live in this environment of scarcity, we wouldn't feel so sensitive about who has access to the affordable housing that we create. But we do. That's the unfortunate reality of it. So there have been some standards that have been put into place to try to to try to help ensure that the people who are receiving affordable housing in Seattle are able to have access to it. Now, I don't know whether or not they will be applied into this particular housing situation, because as I mentioned earlier, they will not be accepting those federal tax credits. They're going to be operating in this alternative, more independent model, and that cannot be stressed enough. Um, But two things that I'll just very briefly talk about are, number one, community preference policy, which in the city of Seattle is really based on displacement and for organizations that elect to follow the city's guidance that relates to community preference. um, They have the opportunity to award preference points to people who are coming from areas that have been defined as experiencing displacement in the city. 
the communities that are in Seattle that are having the most displacement are neighborhoods of color. That's correct. And it seems like an interesting workaround to Federal Fair Housing Act and general discrimination policies that you can't select somebody based on their race, but we know who is being the most affected by all of the horror show of housing issues that we have. Yes. And one of the reasons why community preference policy came into being was because nonprofit developers who were seeking to serve particular communities were finding that they couldn't ensure that members of those communities would have access to that housing. I think the best example of this can be found in the Chinatown International District, where there were public organizations that wanted to create housing for elders who maybe they had limited English proficiency, would definitely need the support of living in their neighborhood to thrive in their lives. And, you know, they were concerned that if they created this housing, it it wouldn't necessarily serve this very vulnerable group of individuals. Okay, Natalie, so the next thing I'm going to ask about is affirmative marketing, because that's kind of the flip side of the community preferences thing. But first, it's not affirmative action marketing. It is affirmative marketing as you are what? So that's a great point. I had never thought about the fact that people could associate it with affirmative action. People associate everything with affirmative action. (laughs) I'm really glad that you pointed that out. So here, affirmative marketing is just meant to be that it's ensuring that the people who will benefit the most from learning about the availability of this housing learn about it. And it uh, there are a few different policies that are followed under affirmative marketing. So one is two weeks before housing becomes available, the entity that owns that housing has to list that availability with the Seattle Housing Authority. The Seattle Housing Authority serves everybody who's in need of affordable housing in the city, and it has really long wait lists. So by going there right away, you are, um, you know, entering into a pool of people who are really in need of affordable housing. The other thing that it allows the um, owner of the housing to do is to select three community organizations. And then those three community organizations can also advertise that housing during the two-week period. One thing that you said and kind of breezed through is how much all of this is made necessary by scarcity, that we simply don't have enough housing for the people that are in here. And we've touched on just a little bit, do people deserve houses? Do Is the person showing up the right one to take this particular thing that the taxpayers have paid for? But if we had enough housing, we would not be having this fight overall. That's correct. And we've also, you know, we also lost, I would say, all of our naturally affordable, or sorry, all of our naturally occurring affordable housing in this city. It used to be that you could find a below market apartment because it was in an unideal location or whoever was renting it out was simply not renting it out at the market rate, or maybe there was something wrong with it. I I think back a lot to one of my first Seattle apartments was, it had a very wonky layout. It was not 
by any means in an ideal location. It was in fact like right next to a mechanic shop. And so luckily I worked a lot and I was never there, but from maybe 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. it was just nonstop drilling and hammering noises. But it also cost me $650 a month, including utilities to live there. Which is unheard of for rent anywhere in the city or the region now. Yes. And I mean, for me, it was a vital way to get myself started, um, you know, as a, a younger person who was earning a lower income and needed to make my way in the world. And I, I really feel for young people, for people who are experiencing all kinds of life changes, for people who simply are in professions that pay less, because those choices are just not there anymore. And that's why we're left, you know, with this, honestly, crappy situation in which, you know, we we have to work so hard to create this affordable housing. And then we stress so much over who has access to it. So many of the houses that were affordable were crap. And people got in it because the windows rattled and there was a leak somewhere and you weren't totally sure where the smell came from. And there were rats. Don't forget about the rats. That's, yeah, never, maybe that's just my personal history, but, um, you know, rats running by the windows, rats running on the, yeah, never mind. <laughs> Many of us have been in those houses and they're just not around anymore. That's true. Or perhaps they're around and people are paying $1,500 a month minimum to live in them if they're a 400 square foot studio. I'm just going to pull out that statistic because I got a report recently by a private organization called Rental Cafe that sent to me, what can you afford for $1,500 a month in Seattle? A 400 square foot studio. 400 square foot studio. On average, yes. So how's our neighbor's ballot initiative isn't trying to actually build rat infested teetering junk. No, in fact, um, it's written into the ballot initiative that the housing will need to meet passive house standards, which are the highest level of standard that exists for energy efficiency. And that should hopefully, over time, mitigate some of the costs because, you know, if people are spending less on electricity, that can be a, a great way to um, have cost savings over time. They also have to embody green building standards. And they have to prioritize the use of labor uh, union-represented construction workers in the construction and maintenance. We do love our union workers putting up quality housing as often as we can get it. Absolutely. I mean, the idea here is to create this housing as a permanently affordable public resource that people from various areas of the income spectrum can benefit from when they need it or when they want it. And that can also create some really good jobs. There um, is a lot of intentionality that came into crafting the language of this ballot initiative, and I find the philosophy behind it to be really exciting. So when we established this podcast, one of the things we were hoping for was for listeners to reach out with us with their thoughts, opinions, and ideas. And we have had those trickling in. And recently, um, we got some letters and corrections on our Heroes in Zeros podcast. Uh, Joe Kunzler writes in with the following thoughts. He says, Joe here, really liking the podcast so far. I would add as a hero, Representative Emily Wicks. She helped get the best transportation 
transportation package ever over the line. And there's HB 1329, the Open Public Meetings Act tune-up. Joe does call out the legislature for continuing to allow remote access and calls the Zoom legislature a win-win for urbanists because it's, quote, truly going to allow for more inclusive voices while reducing vehicle miles traveled. And I just want to quickly put in here that I could not agree more. This, you know, when we think about pre-pandemic, how difficult it was for people to watch um, well, to participate in public hearings, to observe some of these council sessions or other types of meetings that were taking place. It was just a completely different reality. And now, um, you know, I think we're, we're getting more participation, maybe some burnout because Zoom can be really fatiguing. But yeah, especially when you think about the fact of not having to actually travel to the location to give the um, public testimony, it's, it's really been a benefit. Just before the pandemic, I had to go down to Olympia for a hearing. And as I was driving down there, they were making an announcement, oh, all the passes are closed. (gasps) And I was sitting there thinking, well, crud, that's two-thirds of the state completely unable to make it to their legislature today. And they're not changing any of the dates on things. So I completely agree with you, Joe. The remote meetings allow for so many more people to participate, and I think we all appreciate being able to hear different voices on a lot of these initiatives. So thank you, Joe, and thank you to everybody who wants to write us at the uh, podcast here. Um, You can send us an email. Uh, The address is podcast at theurbanist.org. Before we close out this episode, I just want to give a big thanks to Tiffany McCoy from Real Change, one of the organizers that has been working very hard with the House Our Neighbors Coalition and was very gracious in responding to my questions. Well, thank you very much, Tiffany. That's awesome. And that's it for this week's podcast. I'm Ray DeBicke. And I'm Natalie Argarius. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk again soon.